Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. I hope everyone's having a wonderful day. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Matt Offenbacher. Matt, how's everything in your world, buddy? I mean, it's good to be lovely. I mean, getting my beauty sleep. I'm getting like, I might already be 70 in my mind because I've been doing this where like I go to bed at 8.30 mm. and then wake up at before 5. Nice. Um, That's a great schedule. It feels great. But the idea that I think it feels great is like, <laughs> You're way past 25, you know? <laughs> yeah. Man, how do you manage to get to bed that early? I mean, obviously it's like, well, you just set up your day around it, but your kids go to bed fairly early then, I'm assuming? Well, I guess it depends. Like everybody compares, right? And so people are like, oh, you know, our kids are down by seven. And I'm like, oh, you must actually get to have quality time with your spouse or whatever. Yeah. For us, it's like, it's a convoluted circus that begins at 7.15 to 7.30. Yeah. I'm lucky 8 to 8.15, I'm usually in the clear, and then I read a little bit of a book, and, mm. like, I'm just ready to call it. Nice. So no, that makes sense, yeah. man. I think that that's great. And I say that because it's similar-ish. Like, we our goal is to try and be in bed reading by, like, the 7.30, 8 o'clock mark, which happens sometimes. And then other times, if our daughter has a softball practice at 7.30 at night, that doesn't happen. <laughs> But that's just part of it. But uh, anyway, it's good. And you look rested, ready for the holiday season. Again, it's exciting. And with that said, I would talk about baseball, but that's probably not relevant right now. Has anything happened lately? Yeah. Well, I mean, we got the hot stove, right? So we got okay. all the player transaction, everything. So Shohei Otani mm-hmm. signing for the Dodgers. With the Dodgers, it was a huge deal. 10-year, $700 million deal. Wow. Is that the one who is a good batter as well? Yes. Okay. But he has an injury, so he won't pitch next year. Like, so that's the weird so thing. So they're hedging like, their bets on him coming back with a vengeance. Huh? Yeah, they're hedging. And then, like, not only that, everybody's mad because the accounting for it, it's like oh, he deferred a bunch of his salary. So he's only going to make, like, $2 million a year. And then, like, the 10th year, he gets, like, a huge amount of money. Wow. And so it's very... Uh, Interesting. But, like, the accounting and the way it hits everything. So, like, everybody's talking about that. There's some other, you know, there have been some other pretty big moves as far as trades and, you know, the mm. Dodgers are spending a lot of money. They just traded for and then signed Tyler Glass now, who is okay. made of glass. And also, we tend to be very good at rocking during the postseason, so I'm okay with it. But yeah, there's just a lot of action going on, very I guess, cool. outside of the Astros. You know, they didn't have a lot of money to spend, but they got a backup catcher. And mm. I think, I mean, frankly, they'll probably be better this year this coming year just by the way they have a better catching setup and better alignment with players. So cool. Not another good season. I mean, if there's optimism coming from you, then it must be something to look forward to. I'm not crushingly depressed, but nobody's (laughs) on the field to make me feel otherwise. So, right. Well, let's flip that upside down then, because the topic of today is another one of the one of, I don't know what series, what number we are in the Matt hate series, but one of something, probably seven or eight or nine. I hate a lot of things. (laughs) We're probably working our way up. There we go. Well, for today, Matt, we're going to talk about why you dislike or hate lubricant testing. I've oftentimes heard your sort of opinions about it, which are most of the time justified. 
And so I think it'd be good to run through that. You know, I've been in a lot of customers' office where there's a lot of conviction towards doing certain testing to sort of validate which direction they should go, of which everyone who provides a specialty product is going to do testing and show that their product is the best thing since pants with pockets. And then therefore how you influence certain engineers when they're young and willing to receive any information and write it in stone can then make it challenging for us to come around and educate them on something different. Yes. But I think it's good to let's walk through lubricant testing and why you do find it somewhat frustrating all in all, and then follow it up with the reality of it. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, okay. yeah, I think the biggest thing that upsets me is what you've already alluded to. And, and I think it's that we can use this test data to tell whatever story we want. And human psychology or, you know, let's say an anxious salesperson, you're going to let that narrative be told that whatever you have is better than whatever anybody else is using. Like most lubricity meters will give you the opportunity to bias the test in that way, whether it's on purpose or by accident. If you work with them enough, you learn certain nuances that show that this equipment is not as reliable as it could be, that the tests are not as universally insightful as they could be. And yet, you know, we go around overly simplifying the output and be like, look, you know, 0.02 coefficient of friction. You need this stuff and you need it now. And then guess what? We run it and it doesn't do anything like, you know, someone said it would. And it's then, you know, everybody says, well, we're not running that anymore. And then the next new thing comes out with some other version of a very similar story and because everybody's afraid of missing out, we try it again, you know, and so we sort of, we find ourselves leaning a lot on the trust of equipment that isn't very well suited for this information. It can be useful. I do want to qualify that. Mm-hmm. But what frustrates me is if you are not careful, it can be manipulated, misleading, that sort of thing. And, you know, as people who work very hard to make good products, it's very frustrating to be evaluated based on something that you don't think is fair to begin with. Yeah, you know? no kidding. Let's talk a little bit about the equipment because it's. I think that's one thing that really kind of helps set the stage is like how we're actually testing this stuff. Yeah, well, you know, first off, what do we do? If we want to see lubricity, rub two things together, right? And we're mostly looking at rotational. So, you know, the traditional lubricity meter, right? You got a spindle. It's got a motor that rotates a ring. You use a torque wrench. You press a block against it. And, you know you got to have that thing calibrated properly. And there are procedures in the in the manual, but like there are just certain ways. One of its big limitations is you're converting current. It doesn't have a direct torque sensor. It's taking the current required to keep that thing rotating and converting it into a coefficient of friction. So as the machine warms up, the motor warms up, it's a different current, you know, it's different current draw. It can be finicky in certain ways that people tend to overlook. But that also means it's sort of easy to, you know, tweak data. It's easy to kind of manipulate results or parse data into specific, you know, segments that you want to see. Let me keep going. The other things I hate about it. It doesn't circulate the fluid, right? It's just a cup that the, you know, the lubricant, you put the lubricant with whatever mud, it's a cup. Well, guess what? A lot of lubricants are not water soluble. They just... They're not because the HLB ratio to do that, you're going to be water dispersible. What that means is the good stuff floats to the top unless it gets a chance to stick to that metal, you know, in during the immersion phase. 
So if you don't have a stirrer there, you might not be getting very reliable results. Or if you are, it might actually bias you towards the stuff that sticks the best, but might not last the longest, you know? Yeah. So those things, you know, certainly frustrate me. And then there's other testers out there. Our sister company in Canada has a real, you know, like a $300,000 tester that they love. And I just cannot get past what the data sets tell me. Really? Like, and that's a difference of opinion, but I think it's interesting because it's got a very sensitive torque sensor instead of just converting current, which I think that's a better way to go. And that's why we use our other lubricity meters that do have torque sensors on them, but they're expensive, right? So, you know, you've got to be a mud company with the resources to buy a $100,000 tester to get one with a torque sensor on it. Right. A lot of mud companies can do that, but not everybody. Mm. So you're not going to see as much data to compare with. But just the finicky nature of some of these things where even the really sensitive ones can seem to project data all over the place. And so you need multiple runs to validate that data, even our, you know, our fancier lubricity meters. And so what we're looking for is I'm not looking for an absolute number of, man, this gave me a point oh two. I'm looking for two things. One, I'm looking for repeatability. So, and I'm looking for overall reduction versus a baseline. So the one thing about those very low numbers with a lubricity meter is the lower they are, the less accurate they are. Right. So like a difference between a 0.02 and 0.01 is way, way different than 0.18 and 0.17 because mm. the conversion just doesn't seem to work. You know, the more sensitive you get, the less likely, the more error you get. Right. So, you know, we look for that relationship, but we also look for repeatability. And so you sort of get this grouping where you say, okay, I'm starting to feel good about this product. But most of the time, that's not how data is presented. Most of the time, what you see is, wow, look at this stuff. We ran one test and we got this and it's the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I mean, if I screened out all of my tests that got me initially excited, like if I just took those, I'd be able to fool a lot of people. But that's not how we do it. So, you know, that frustrates me. And then people come back and it's a fair criticism oh, well, you didn't do it at pressure. You didn't do it at temperature. Like, how do we know? The problem is there are testers out there, but guess what? There's only one out there. It was probably invented in a lab. It's patented, so nobody else can make it without paying a bunch of royalties. Right. They're not going to buy it. And it may be even the people that invented it aren't around, and so it's impossible to fix. And a lot of this stuff is trial and error. So you iterate through a bunch of different chemistries. And so when I present to you some data on a lubricity meter that only I have... Like nobody else in the industry can get their hands on it to be the judge of it. It's like, hey, my data is really good. And so no one else can validate this, but it's really good. Right. You know, so that drives me crazy. It's just the test equipment itself is it's inadequate. Like I understand why, but there are ways to work with it to make it useful. But it isn't just, hey, look at this number. Right. And so I just hate having to get into these discussions where, well, look, these other people say your product isn't as good because of such and such. And it's like, look, frankly, at this point, based upon what I've seen from at least third party labs, if our products get tested, I'm pretty comfortable going in and undermining the entire premise of the test just based on the way I know the, this equipment works right. and how people run these tests. Like, I can't do it for you. And, and like, I'm a biased that like I can't do it if you want a biased outside party. Right. But the fact is like this stuff's all over the place. And so I think sometimes 
there's a reasonable chance that the results could be totally random. Right. You know? Yeah. When we look at the data, I mean, what data are you talking about? Because a lot of times there's really only a few deliverables with it comes to data, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, just presenting that raw coefficient of friction and look at this versus this. Once again, you know, the sensitivity of this equipment is all over the place. So just using that to compare one versus another doesn't really help. You know, let's say you throw a mud on and you get a initial coefficient of 0.25. You get a lubricant and you get a coefficient of 0.1. That's pretty good, right? Then you throw the next one on and you get a baseline and that same mud gives you 0.28. And then you get a result of, you know, 0.15 or whatever, right? Like, yeah, it's showing a clear reduction. Like there's consistency in the reduction, but like, do I rank those two lubricants separately? Like, because my baseline is shifting, it should tell you that your output is also shifting. Right. Right. And so those are things to just keep in mind. And the lower we go, which means like the better your lubricant works, the better chance you're going to catch one that's a very low number, which is probably laden with error. Right. So we like to present not only, you know, we like to show the baseline and then the relative reduction from baseline. We like to show it different concentrations too. You know, sometimes people say, oh, this stuff works great at X percent. And it's like, okay, well, you know, did you ever get the other one a chance to work up to 3% or whatever, you know? So we like to do, you know, 1%, 2%, 3% and see when that, you know, decline is sort of leveling off. You know, sometimes there's sort of a value proposition there as well, right? Like yours might be really powerful and work at 1%, but if it costs four times mine and at 2%, I'm just where you are. <laughs> like, you know, let's do some economics here. Well, so, yeah. How does the compatibility with, you know, what, because obviously you have to test not just with water and lube, but how does compatibility come into play with different, say, base fluids or different products? Well, you know, the first is you look at a brochure and it says, you know, it works with water-based mud and oil-based mud and brine. And it's like, I guarantee you, like works with is different than performs, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I've seen a lot of oil-based mud lubricants that do nothing. Does that mean they work with oil-based mud? I mean, they work with oil-based mud, but they don't work as a lubricant, <laughs> right? Yeah. So those sort of, you know, or it works in mud and brine. Okay. Well, guess what? It probably takes a lot more in mud than it does in brine. Like, and then you only present brine data where you're making those claims. Like, let's have a conversation about where this stuff works under those conditions and how well it works. Yeah. Attendance isn't success. Like <laughs> showing up in the mud, it doesn't mean that it's offering the same benefits as what you, you know, that stuff just sort of frustrates me and we're careful. And it's the same thing with, you know, general compatibility where it's like, okay, well, it may work in fresh water or it may work in saturated brine but it probably performs in one better than the other or, you know, how tolerant is it of some of these contaminants? You know, we see some that they say, oh, we'll keep the pH down. And it's like, well, that affects other things with fluid like corrosion and product performance. If I got to keep the pH down, I'm sort of shooting myself in the foot. Right. So I guess just there's a lot of data presented, but usually it's curated to only present one thing to imply other things are good, you know? <laughs> yeah. And this is the same thing. Like, yes, some of our water-based lubricants work in oil-based mud or don't damage oil-based mud. They don't contaminate it. They don't undermine properties. Great. But they're not the best lubricant for oil-based mud and they shouldn't be marketed as such. Right. We, we're not going to recommend it. 
I'm not trying to show you a one size fits all. I'm trying to fix your problem. So (laughs) anyways, that kind of playing with the data is another reason I just hate lubricant testing. Yeah. So, I mean, what kind of behavior have you seen just from the market in terms of selling and marketing? I mean, I would imagine this all ties into, this plays into why you hate it as well, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the outlandish claims, right? Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe I should get more excited about lubricants when I go talk to customers, but for the most part, I don't even want to talk about one single product. I want to know what they're going to, you know, I want to understand more about what they're using because we have products that are suited to particular operational conditions and I want to make sure it's the best one. Yeah. And so it's quite frustrating when somebody, oh, this can do everything. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right. And a lot of the folks that you hear this from, I think... I say it as, you know, you're taking advantage of an uninformed buyer because I don't expect a drilling engineer who's dealing with all these other peddlers, if you will, like they want success, right? Yeah. And so somebody presents something that, oh, there's some data, we're engineers, data's good, right? And they're like, well, okay. But they don't understand any of the qualifications of that data, but sometimes the person selling it doesn't either. It was hard for me to learn some of this stuff from the get-go on what to believe and what to not believe. Before I was like, well, I guess I just got to put it on a rig and find out. And that's still true, right? You need to do the evaluation on the rig. Yeah. But, you know, I saw a video recently where they were talking about, you know, oh, this lubricant has, you know, several hundred thousand PSI of film strength doing an extreme pressure test. And I was like, I'm not sure I believe that. And sure enough, we looked into it and it has high film strength, but they used a tester that was designed from the like 20s and was never intended to do that measurement. And so they were sort of extrapolating it but like you know if i go in there and talk about how proud i am of my seventy thousand psi film strength and somebody else is saying well i can do more than double that so well i want to go with that it's like well we didn't use the same tester and that stuff is just i hate having to have those comparisons right because (laughs) it puts me in a position where i never want to have to i like educating but i don't like having to correct the record, which puts me more in a position of talking somebody down, right? I want to talk up my products. I don't want to explain why their stuff is bunk. Yeah. You know, that's not how I want to do it. But what choice do I have in a situation like that? Yeah. No, again, it does make it very challenging. So moving on from that, what's the reality? I mean, why, you know, with all the, I guess, reasons to believe that this is, it may not be the best approach, What is the alternative? I mean, why even do it in the first place then? I still think that you can do lubricant testing and generate insight. It's not as exciting as, oh my gosh, I had this and it got 800% better. You know, it's those sort of things aren't there. Those things are out there in the market. But the reality is we can be pretty honest about what we're seeing with the data and explain from our perspective as, you know, mud guys, why we're excited about it. So I I think you can get a good lubricant from this testing. Yeah. Just, you know, being honest about it and educating the customer on this is why I'm convinced relative to other products, you know, why we think this is a step forward relative to what we were selling in the past, that kind of thing. And that, you know, this stuff, there's no universal success, right? Like this is application-based, Let's understand what we're doing and make sure we execute properly. And then the other part of it is, if you really believe in your product, you know, let's not just use hearsay like, oh, yeah, we just used it on another rig. Torque went down 30%. It was real good. You know, 
let's actually get down to the data, you know, the nuts and bolts of the data and how things look. We have more sensors than ever. Like, let's work with customers and do some real science on is more energy getting to the bit or not? Right. You know? Well, no, I think you make bring up a very good point with how much we're measuring and access to real-time data becoming more and more available. We'll be able to make decisions not based off of a subjective opinion of a driller, directional driller, company representative. Let the data speak for itself. And so with that being said, most of the time before you throw something in the hole, being a lubricant, you typically do the testing. And I'm curious from your experience over time, would you say that if you see a lubricant in the lab perform well under whatever metrics you're using, does that translate to the similar degree of success in the field or is it very random? It's something in between. So there are products that we've been excited about that weren't as good as we'd hoped, right? But I would say that thus far, anything that has shown promise in the lab has brought something to the table in the field. But keep in mind, there's like operational circumstances you have to keep, you know? Yeah. So we had, you know, our oil-based mud lubricant. We use it on trial for something, but it was clearly a mechanical issue, mm. you know? Yeah, we might be able to slick up some surfaces a little bit, but the real issue is like, you know, I can't change the weight of your pipe. You know, I can't alter your trajectory. And so like, I don't expect that lubricant to work if it's a problem that lubricants don't fix. So I would generally say if we see some really good data in the lab, we tend to see something promising in the field. After our whole rigor mole, I'm not like, you're talking about a lot of tests here mm-hmm. to reach that level of let's go do a field trial. We generally tend to see positive results. Does it end up being, you know, the blockbuster? That really needs to be dictated by the rig, I think. But when we see something good in the lab, it didn't start out this way. I'll make that very clear. Today, after all of the stuff that we've done, after all the money we've spent, after all of the you know personnel we've put on these things, I think we're in a place where we're a lot more confident that we can correlate something looking strong in the lab under similar appropriate application, doing well on a rig. Nice. So, okay. That answers all my questions, Matt. It's a great conversation. It's one that I think we'll keep having. I mean, again, I ask this every time and any sort of closing last thoughts. I mean, you wrapped it up pretty nicely there, but anything else come to mind before we wrap this thing up? (sighs) No, I just, wow. Do I hate lubricant testing? (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. No, but again, I think it's just, it's part of the process, right? Of getting something down hole. You got to do your background work first. It's part of the process. And until something a better alternative presents itself, I'm sure we'll keep doing them. And so with that said, if anyone has any thoughts around that, I would love to hear your feedback, whether you're a mud engineer or someone that's worked in the lab, maybe you've got a secret sauce that you know works maybe better. But with all that being said, everyone, we really appreciate you listening in. If you have any questions, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Be sure to connect with AES on LinkedIn. We're continuously putting out great content. You can check out our YouTube page where we have a bunch of good educational content on there as well. Websites packed full of information. And if you just want to reach out to us, good old email works at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. With that said, take care, everyone. Be safe. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees.
The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.